the Spirit of God, the Master, is on me. Because God anointed me. He sent me to preach good news to the poor, to heal the heartbroken, announce freedom to all captives, pardon to all sinners. God sent me to announce the year of his grace, a celebration of God's destruction of our enemies and to comfort all who mourn, to care for the needs of all who mourn in Zion, give them bouquets of roses instead of ashes, messages of joy instead of news of doom, a praising heart instead of a languid spirit. Rename them oaks of righteousness planted by God to display his glory. This is God's word. So what's next? What's next? We've been in a series on lament for the past five Sundays. We've talked about what lament is and why it's an appropriate response to the pain, suffering, and injustice we see in our world. We've talked about how to lament. Turn, complain, ask, trust. We've talked about a lament as a way to show up and speak up for those in pain. We've talked about lament both as a response to individual sin and corporate failing. So what's next? Or is that it? Do we just stay in lament? Just sit in our grief? Is that the goal? Today, as we walk through Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, I want to answer that question. What's next? See, grief isn't meant to be the ending. That's not the sole purpose of lament. Instead, lament puts us in a posture of humility so that we can receive healing and participate in redemptive action. And as we look at Isaiah 61, we'll see how the lament of the people of Israel put them in a posture of humility so they could receive healing and participate in redemptive action. We're going to kind of take the long way around to our passage today because I don't think we can understand the good news that's promised here unless we understand the bad news that came before it. So let's talk first about the bad news for Israel. Now, what we have in our Bibles as the book of Isaiah is made up of actually three smaller books. The first book is chapters 1 through 39. And that first book is written from the perspective of before their exile into Babylon. That first book is filled with warnings about the coming exile at the hand of Babylon. Book 2, the middle book of Isaiah, is chapters 40 through 55. That book is from the perspective of the people as they're in exile in Babylon. So book two contains promises of coming deliverance. And it's in the middle of this second book of Isaiah that we're introduced through a series of four speeches to someone called the servant, who we understand to be the Messiah. Book three, where our passage today sits, is chapters 56 through 66, the last 10 chapters of, of the book of Isaiah. Those chapters are written after the exile, when Israel's been returned to their land. In this book, 
it's quickly made clear that exile has not produced righteousness in the people. So more judgment is coming. Now it's striking to me, and maybe to you, that 70 years of exile in Babylon have not produced righteousness in God's people. The third book of Isaiah, when they get back to the land, the first words to the people in chapter 56, verse 1, open with this command to the people of Israel who've newly returned home. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. You would think that 70 years in captivity attributed solely to Israel's failure to obey and then a miraculous return home attributed solely to the grace of God would be enough for the people rejoicing being back home to obey. But by chapter 58, two chapters into this book, this third book, God is laying out again all of the ways they're not living in righteousness. God says they oppress the people that work for them. They fight with each other. They don't make sure that the poor are cared for. They ignore the homeless. They align themselves with wicked people. They cooperate with systems that stop people from flourishing. Isaiah's not pulling any punches here as he describes the sinful state of God's people. They're overrun with corruption, he says. Their religious practices don't penetrate their hearts. They murder. They shed the blood of the innocent. They oppress the poor and the immigrants among them. They get rich by keeping others poor. And yet, in these chapters, these people have the audacity to say to God, What? We go to church? We sing worship songs? We put money in the offering plate? What? There is a clear gap, Isaiah is outlining for us, between the chosen people Israel is called to be and who they actually are in real life. He says their idea of righteousness and justice is twisted. It's clear that they cannot accomplish righteous living. They're too corrupt, too easily swayed to the ways of evil. Now, I don't want to splash in anyone's Kool-Aid this morning, but it's my last Sunday, so I guess what's the worst you're going to do? Um, do you all see just like any connection between God's people 3,000 years ago and God's people today? Is it possible that we too are sometimes confused about what God's idea of righteousness is? And you know, I think the English language doesn't help us either. In English, we have two words, righteousness and justice. We typically use the word righteousness to mean the state of our hearts, whether our thoughts and beliefs are right and holy. Meanwhile, we use the word justice to be about things regarding the law, rules that would ideally keep society from devolving into chaos. Almost like righteousness is about what's on the inside and what we think and believe and justice is concerned kind of out there somewhere with other people. But the word used for righteousness in Isaiah 56, 1 that we read a bit ago, uh, the word is sadaka. That same word is translated as both righteousness and justice. 
all over the Old Testament, interchangeably. A friend of mine in my Greek exegesis class told me that in Spanish, the word justicia is used the same way. Justice and righteousness, interchangeable. So the challenge we have as English speakers is that we often equate righteousness or what God wants from us with our daily devotionals, our church attendance, and just like trying not to sin too much. But then we leave out this entire component of righteousness, God's way, that has to do with how we treat other people, how we interact with the systems and the communities where we live. And it seems that Israel, although their language aligns these ideas more closely than ours does, they still had this problem. And so Isaiah in chapter 59 tells the people that God has seen their wickedness. He's seen the depth of their depravity. And listen, God has provided the people of Israel opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to obey. He put Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden with one rule, one and they couldn't keep it. With Noah, he kept only the most righteous person on earth in his family, wiping out everything else. Everything else that was wicked and evil was destroyed. He kept the best person. Could the best person live righteously? No. They're not 10 minutes off the ark before they start practicing the same evil things the people who were just destroyed start doing. Throughout the Old Testament, God affirms covenants with Abraham, Moses, David, promising them that he will be with them, that he will bless them, that he will keep them in their land if they will just be faithful. And he was faithful even when they weren't. Even his allowing Israel to be conquered by other armies, even when he allowed sickness to come over the people, all of that was to try and get people to turn their hearts to him. All of that was to try and get his people to obey and live righteously. In chapter 59, God says, evil is everywhere. Humanity is utterly incapable of living according to my ways. They can't do it. So, I'm going to give them my righteousness. The problem is immense. And so the solution has to be powerful. That takes us to our verses today. The good news the good news that we're told about in Isaiah 61 verse 1 is that God is going to provide righteousness, not just for Israel, but for everybody, for all nations, all people, through his servant. Through this servant, people will be gifted with the righteousness that they can't earn on their own. Through his servant, there'll even be a new heaven and a new earth that sin and injustice can't touch. God is sovereign and he has decided he wants his people saved. And so he's going to work a lasting salvation for them. He's going to provide a solution to the endless unrighteousness of his covenant people. And it will come by way of his servant, the Messiah. In verse 1 here, 
when the servant speaks and says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. The Lord has anointed me. The servant is declaring that he has been chosen, empowered, and sent by God for the purpose of bringing deliverance to the people so that they can live righteously. This servant is obviously going to be someone more than a prophet. The servant will be someone who can produce what no judge, king, or prophet has been able to do for the people of Israel. Now, because we have the benefit of the New Testament, we know exactly who the servant is. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus clearly identifies himself as the servant. Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah and reads this passage. And when he closes it, he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled. This is what I'm here to do. I'm the servant, and I'm bringing good news. So the servant has come to do three world-changing tasks. The servant has come to preach good news, enact the good news, and transform by the good news. So first, the servant has come to preach good news to the poor. The servant announces, you have had nothing but bad news, but I'm here with some good news. I'm here to bring hope for the nation. I'm here to bring deliverance. In Luke 2.10, we see the connection again to Jesus as this servant. The angel announces Christ's birth to the shepherds with these words, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Isaiah says this will be good news for the poor. Who are the poor? Well, the rest of these verses tell us. The poor are the brokenhearted. The poor are the prisoner. Those who are held captive by their own actions or by the oppression of the powerful. Those who are mourning the evil in the world. One author says the poor are those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think that they will never again experience the favor of God or see his just vengeance meted out against those who have misused them. Those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the fainting heaviness of despair. These are they to whom the servant Messiah, Messiah shouts, Good news! Good news! In Matthew 5's Beatitudes, Jesus seems to be speaking to the same kinds of people, doesn't he? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn in this passage are the servants of the Lord whose hearts are breaking for Jerusalem. And this church family is why lament is so important. This right here. Comfort is for those who mourn. Comfort is for those who mourn. If we don't lament if we don't look at all that's broken in our world, 
and get down on our knees and lament about it to God, then we are voluntarily opting out of the opportunity to be comforted. Listen, in America, we love the narrative that we are a country full of people who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, figure it out, and find a way. This idea of American exceptionalism has deeply embedded in us a tendency to deny problems. Problems in our country, problems in our lives. And it's also caused us to cast blame on individuals when anything seems broken. Because there's no sense admitting weakness or crying for help. That's not what we do. This is America. And America is awesome. And so are we. America. <laughs> I love my country. But that way of thinking is a problem for those of us who want to live according to the kingdom of God. Because when we ignore problems whether they're problems in our country, in our own hearts, in our marriages, in our organizations, we will never lament the brokenness. Why would we? As far as we're concerned, nothing's broken. And if we don't lament, well, we certainly won't be in a humble enough posture to receive comfort and healing from the Savior. And if we don't receive healing, then we can't be a part of extending healing to others. These verses remind us the importance of lament, the importance of acknowledging sin and evil and pain and injustice when we see it. When we lament, we align ourselves with Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. Listen, when we lament, we are right where God wants us. Because when we lament, we're open to receive. We can receive comfort. We can receive healing. The Spirit can get to work in us. That's why we lament. So the Spirit speaks words, or the servant speaks words that bring good news. But after speaking, the servant acts. The servant has come to enact good news. The Messiah is not coming just with words that will make people feel better. Oh no, he's coming with actions that will help people be better. The Messiah promises to bind up the brokenhearted, to give personal attention to the wounds that have caused heartache. He promises soothing, healing, restoring he promises to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This phrase here, the year of the Lord's favor, is an allusion back to Leviticus. In Leviticus, when God is laying out how he wants his people to live, he's giving them a template for the year, a template for seasons, a template for time. And he establishes something called the year of jubilee, that's supposed to happen every 50 years. Leviticus 25.10 tells us, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. There's no evidence that Israel actually ever did this. 
but God had commanded every 50 years to be a year of jubilee, where all the land goes back to the original owners, where all the slaves are set free, so that nobody amasses so much wealth while other people go without. So the Messiah is proclaiming here that he's come to settle all the debts, to release all the slaves, like a never-ending year of jubilee. The servant's word of announcement is like an executive order, effective immediately. Pardon every prisoner. Release every captive. It's the year of jubilee. Next, he proclaims vengeance. Now, the idea of vengeance is troubling to some of us. And honestly, I have struggled with verses like this that promise something that at first glance seems so out of character with who God is. But when I think about, again, who are these verses for? It starts to make a little more sense. When I think about vengeance through the eyes of the poor, I can understand why vengeance might be a desired promise from God. I wonder if this verse is a comfort to those who've been failed by our legal system. I wonder if this verse is a comfort to those who've been wrongly accused or to those who've been harmed and justice hasn't been done. I wonder if this verse is a comfort to victims of abuse. I wonder if this verse is a comfort to anyone whose life has been damaged by another who never acknowledged the pain they caused. The vengeance of God reminds us justice will be done. It will. Next, the servant provides new clothes. He provides a headdress instead of ashes. The words for headdress and ashes in verse 3, they're made up of the same letters. So pay air for a pair. Pay air for a pair. It's a wordplay, pointing out an exact exchange of hurt with its equivalent remedy. Just as the Messiah will give personal attention by binding up wounds, he will pay attention to the specific hurts of his people and give the perfect exchange of brokenness for joy. So the servant has preached good news. The servant has enacted good news. And what is the result of all of this? Well, people are transformed by the good news. This motif of clothing in verse 3 signifies an outward expression of an inward reality. It's a poetic way of describing someone's inner state by describing what they look like on the outside. And so this complete change of clothing and apparel prophesies a dramatic, life-altering transformation when the Messiah comes. There is a beautiful contrast between someone dressed for a funeral and someone dressed for a party. The one in mourning is dressed in sackcloth, dirty, ripped, smudged everywhere with ashes, tears rolling down their cheeks. Their spirit is crushed with despair. But the servant is going to transform that. 
He's going to wash the ashes from them and anoint them with fragrant oil, displaying how highly valued they are. As those ashes come off, they'll be given a beautiful floral headdress. The dingy, dirty, uncomfortable sackcloth is replaced by a garment that draws praise from everyone who sees it. Where did you get that dress? Their spirit overflows with joy. The difference from before is so remarkable that they're given a new name. A new name assigns a new nature, new possibility, new potential. And what is this new name? Oaks of righteousness. Oak means stability, permanence, abundance, a complete transformation. They have undergone a transformation so dramatic that they can do nothing but give glory to God. All they can do is stand there and be a subject of amazement. God did that? Listen, when real people living real lives demonstrate the transformation that God has made in them, it is living proof that God saves sinners. And it's the same with you and me. When we mourn our brokenness, when we receive healing and grace from Jesus, and our lives are transformed, then we get to just stand there and bring God glory. And as people ask us what happened to us, we get to bring them back to the one from whom there is a fountain of grace and mercy. And then their lives are transformed so much that other people are asking them what happened. And then they get to bring them back to Jesus who gives them healing and grace and transforms their lives so that they can bring other people back to the same one who can do the same for them. And it just goes on and on and on. This is what verse 4 is about, by the way. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Verse 4 is God's people taking on their new identity as servants of the servant. It's God's people taking on the mission statement of the Messiah as their reason for living. It's God's people who've grieved, repented, and been restored who now go to proclaim restoration to others. In the power of the Spirit, by the grace and healing of Jesus, we become healers, comforters, bringers of freedom. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we join Jesus in preaching the good news. This is my story. God saved my life when I wanted to end it. But God kept me alive. God restored my broken heart. God allowed me to experience the love of this church family. God gifted me a husband and two kids I'm crazy about. And I think they like me too. <laughs> He's allowed this sinful, doubting woman to lead his people in worship to preach his word from his stage to his people. He's restored me and now he's allowing me to be a conduit of his love 
as everyone I meet sees the joy in me that comes only from him. And they say, wow, I can't believe what God did in you. And I get to say, and he can do it in you. And he's allowed me to witness him doing this for our church family, for all of us. Randy shared a few weeks ago how our church started, how Windsor Road started because of a pastor who had an affair, and we defended him. That's our humble beginning. But since I started attending Windsor Road as a student all those years ago, I have seen God use this church with a broken beginning to be a part of healing and restoration for so many. I've seen us welcome and walk alongside single moms. I've seen us love and support people with mental illnesses. And I've seen us go get trained so we can do a better job of that. I've seen us give standing ovations at faith stories of people who are overcoming drug and alcohol addictions. I've seen us cancel our services on a weekend to go serve our community. I've seen us bring meals to new moms. I've seen us rake leaves and put on new roofs. I've seen five-year-olds preach and teenagers raise money to build wells in Africa. I have been led to the throne of Jesus by our high school worship band. I've watched the way that you love college students like I was, and you give them a home here in Champaign where they can grow in their faith. I've seen you give generously when it hurts. I've watched your faithfulness and your behind-the-scenes tasks that you've done for years. I've seen a pastor unafraid to admit his struggles with anger because he knows God gets the glory every time people see you be used by him anyway. I've seen marriages that were doomed to failure be brought back together. I've seen police officers and judges come to church with people with a record, and I have seen love between them. I've seen parole officers cheering for their clients when they graduate drug court. I've seen miraculous healing. And I've seen strong faith when it doesn't come. I've seen you turn down promotions because you know God wants your life to be about more than your job. And I've seen you rise to the top of companies so that you can lead the way in providing honest, excellent service and in modeling Christ-like servant leadership to your employees. I've seen wives pray for the salvation of their husband when it seemed impossible. And I've watched those wives baptize those husbands behind me. I've seen you stick around the last few years, even though for some of us it's been hard. It's been uncomfortable as we try and figure out how to be a church that more accurately reflects heaven. I've seen you learning and trying to listen well to our brothers and sisters of color as they share their pain with you. I've watched you love, welcome, celebrate, and worship together. And all of this, all of this from a church that started in brokenness. How beautiful. What good news. Windsor Road, this church is a picture of what our Messiah can do. This church is a picture of the new creation that is coming.
This is a place where our corporate and individual transformation leads the world around us to give glory to God. So Windsor Road family, keep lamenting what's broken. Stay open to receiving God's comfort in your grief about what's broken. Keep being transformed by him. And keep living your transformed life to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I love you.